0: Lennon Flowers, welcome to the new school. It's great to have you here. Um, Lennon arrived in Bolinas with one of our board members, Janet, who's also here tonight. Um, and it was introduced to Michael Lerner, the founder of Commonweal, um, and myself in a long conversation in his office, in his library, um, where we learned a lot about this project that Lennon is engaged in called the Dinner Party. But before we dive into the Dinner Party, Can you just tell us about your story, where you came from? How did you end up being here today?
1: There's a small question for you. (laughs) Um, So I think for me to answer that um, accurately, you have to kind of, uh, I think I have to go back to the beginning and um, don't worry, it won't be forever. (laughs) The gasps in the room. Um, But I think, so I I grew up in uh, North Carolina, Um, in Raleigh. And I grew up uh, kind of straddling two worlds um, from a very early age. One of those worlds um, was middle-class suburban Raleigh um, and an extraordinarily comfortable, we had everything that we needed um, world. I was the um, daughter, my parents divorced um, when I was fairly early um, and so and my mother um, very quickly kind of took on the uh, fierce lioness mentality of mm-hmm. single working moms in the world um, and even after remarrying never kind of fully lost that. Um, so that was kind of one part um, and it was you know a world um, in which she had kind of um, vowed and, and reinforced for us from an early age Um, that we could go forth and and do anything that we wanted to. You know, it was the 90s. Um, But then the other world um, was actually, and a story that I kind of learned to inhabit, was more hers. Um, And she had grown up in... Eastern North Carolina, um, in the in tobacco country, um, amidst really deep poverty, and so I think it was from a really early age of um, going, you know, to kind of family gatherings and visiting every couple of months, Mm -hmm. um, that I, you know, began to kind of see a very different set of circumstances um, than the ones that I inhabited on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. And through that, um, and through you know, one of the motherisms that kind of stuck with me was, you know, that notion of um, there but for the grace of God go I, um, this coming from a woman who was um, lay agnostic her entire life, um, but I I think beginning from an early age to recognize um, the way in which we tend to conflate um, circumstance and potential Mm -hmm. and don't see potential um, because of what is masked by circumstance um, Mm -hmm. and people who feel very shut down or never have kind of the opportunity to really thrive Mm -hmm. um, and to be kind of genetically related um, and in very kind of close association to that to realize the very kind of thin lines um, Mm -hmm. that separate us all. Um, and through worlds of difference um, was, I, I think, a part of that kind of origin story. Um, and then, you know, for the context and um, setting tonight, um, at the age of 17, um, my mom was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, And I was, you know, at the time, hell-bent on getting as far out of North Carolina as quickly as possible, kind of a theater kid. Um, And from that moment forward, so um, for really the last kind of dozen years, um, everything took a decidedly different turn. Um, And I ended up uh, going to school um, about 30 minutes down the road, um, staying very close. Mm -hmm. And um, she passed away my senior year of... She was diagnosed my senior year of high school, Mm -hmm. passed away my senior year of college. um, And throughout that period and um, thereafter... Um, my kind of coping mechanism, my um, means for, you know, showing up in the world had been to get really, really busy and stay that way um, and use that as a distraction. And so um, it was, um, you know, thereafter. And and I think um, finding within, um, you know, out of that experience, kind of a hunger to go out and do um, and to use that both in a way that powered me forward, but also, um, you know, proved kind of a powerful source of distractions Mm -hmm. and alienation from what became a very big part of my story um, was, you know, the kind of origins here. Um, And then shortly, um, a couple years after graduation, moved out to California, um, met on my first day in the office um, a woman named Carla. um, And as we were walking back from coffee a few months later, um, she unearthed the fact that her father had passed away of um, brain cancer about six months before. And that was the first moment um, that I saw anybody else among my peer community who'd been through the same experience of losing a parent. Um, and it was the first moment that this part of my story that I had kind of run from um, and kept in very intentionally hidden from view and became, in fact, a source of um, real connectivity um, and a source of conversation um, and, um, you know, something that uh, felt kind of amazing to share um, and to recognize, you know, how good on the um, other side of it I had gotten at the kind of um, avoiding the deer in headlights reactions.
0: Right. So after that experience, that's what led you on the path to the dinner party.
1: Yeah. Um, so we, um, after meeting, it was a few, a couple months after that, or weeks, where, um, she invited a group of women who had all lost parents um, over for dinner one night. Mm-hmm. Um, the origin story of the dinner party is that we had absolutely no intention of ever starting the dinner party. Um, that um, this you know, really grew out of um, personal experience and that kind of hunger for community. And I think all of us, you know, that night, kind of knocked very timidly mm-hmm. on the door. You know, right. like, the, went through the kind of flaky routines that are um, that my generation is in part known for. Like, maybe I could find an excuse to not go tonight. This sounds really scary um, for all of us mm-hmm. who had um, been kind of very adept at avoiding that part of our stories. Um, instead, what we found in the course of that evening was... Uh, an extraordinary recognition of ourselves in mm-hmm. each other and in the other um, people around that table, and so we talked until two in the morning and it was a Sunday and everyone had work the next morning so we like piled into her mm-hmm. bed um, and you know and then at 6 a.m um, Michelle, who was a nurse, um, went off you know to her job and um, we just kept doing it because it felt yeah. really really good And when
0: you're talking about your generation, um, do you I mean, I'm really curious about this generation that some people call the millennial generation, which are the people that are after high school or after college, before they have families, they're in this in-between space, often in their 20s and 30s. Um, and you're talking about how your generation deals with loss might be different than previous generations. And I'm wondering, what about what is. do you have any observations around how maybe this generation might be dealing with this differently?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think... Um, it's interesting that um, on the one hand I think generationally we are um, the product of kind of a culture of banality mm-hmm. um, and that it is very easy and very dangerous at times to kind of express um, you know hidden parts of yourselves you know and so that we kind of live in um, you know and, and everything that's talked about that you know it's it's easy to kind of project an image here
0: right.
1: um, and to want to cling as as hard as possible to that image and because you see everybody else kind of projecting that particular image you know in their own Facebook feeds and beyond mm-hmm. um, you know it begins um, to create you know, a, a false reality where everyone is kind of wearing a set of masks and you right. don't see beneath that surface. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I also think that generationally, we are ready and hungry for, and I think you see this um, coming out in, in a number of different ways, um, to talk openly about you know subjects that have otherwise been tabooed, and so you see this kind of opening up um, mm-hmm. of conversation about race and gender um, and gender identity and sexuality, um, you know, and topics that you know have been kind of no-nos um, in previous age. And so I think the the combination of those two tensions, um, at times, you see um, people having, I think, an easier time. Um, you know, I look at my parents' generation. Um, and, and the stoicism of um, the generation before, that came mm-hmm. before them. Um, and there weren't a lot of spaces to kind of openly talk mm-hmm. about, um, you know, that which was to be kept private, right. um, you know, and back, um, you know, at home and dealt with um, mm-hmm. within the family. Um, and I think that generationally, because we're not living with our families, we're not often typically, the new norm is not that you live in the same kind right. of neighborhood and community, um, that people uh, have given themselves a little bit more permission um, you know, to uh, to kind of explore um, their own road um, and to share that openly as individuals, but then I think that there's a, a number of kind of um, forces that um, play a counteractive role, if that makes sense.
0: It, it does, and, and- uh, on that same line, you know, death and loss have often been in the realm of spirituality and faith. So communities of faith would have ways to deal with grief, that have ways to deal with, with marking that moment and having different rituals around it. In the tradition that I come from, we sit Shiva. We sit for seven days and you mourn and you mark the griefing at different, at, at different time periods. And it seems to me that maybe within the generation that you're talking about, is, if you take the Bay Area as a place a little bit of a gold rush where people are coming from all over the world to the, the dot-com explosion. People are leaving those communities of faith. They're leaving the, the, those old traditions. And maybe there's a connection between that sense of, 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 you know, you no longer have the containers to hold that set of emotions.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think, um, you know, when I think of our, our grandparents um, generation, you know, they found their comfort, particularly, you know, around grief and loss, Through church community, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and through the ceremony, um, you know, be it of a funeral or various kind of religious practices and a like physical grave site that you could return to. I think presently we're living in a time in which there aren't rituals. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people are. Seeking in each other, um, and in these kind of modern um, right. communities, what you know they pre- that what previously was very place-based mm-hmm. um, and permanent, but also very institutional. And I think when you look at it, um, you know our our generation um, is kind of famous for its disengagement Mm -hmm. from institutions, that we're like fleeing organized religion and um, political parties en masse, you know, and identifying more and more as political independents. You know, we're um, spiritual rather than um, claiming a religion as our own. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, I think when you kind of dig below the surface, it's not a matter that people are asking um, fewer questions than they did once upon a time or seeking, um, you know, like, are are any less inclined to ask big questions about why are we here on Earth um, or are any more really apathetic about, you know, um, what's happening in the world, it's that they're simply mistrustful Mm -hmm. of those institutions that used to govern kind of how we operate. Um and so I think the figuring out of kind of new community mm-hmm. and how we create these spaces that are sacred, how in an age of information um, accessibility, mm-hmm. um, where we can, you know surface, Rituals and practices that have been, um, you know, held by different communities, you know, throughout time. Humans have been dying for a really, really long time, and some of them have been doing a better job of it than we do now. And so, and I think the kind of craving um, to find to name mm-hmm. that which you know doesn't feel safe in kind of daily conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, People are, you know, picking, picking, and choosing in the same way that we like pick and choose our modern family in the places where we land. We're picking and choosing different rituals and practices, um, you know, that feed us. And that's one thing that we've really found is that there is this kind of like sense of DIY um, for how we kind of cre- each create our own roadmaps. Um, so the, the,
0: the DIY being the Do it yourself. So in a sense, (laughs) sorry, translation.
1: (laughs) Do your
0: your own ritual, or you know, create your own container. Which, in a sense, I guess that's what the, the dinner party is. So can you tell us what happens at a dinner party?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the dinner party in um, simplest terms is a group of mostly 20 and Mm -hmm. 30-somethings who've each experienced some form of significant loss. Um, And for us, that typically is um, a parent, a partner, a sibling, um, in some cases a really close friend, Mm -hmm. um, and come together over dinner tables to talk about it you talk about ritual, I think the one kind of ritual that has stayed present in all of our lives across all cultural and economic lines is food Mm -hmm. and food practices as a means of bringing people together. And so, um, you know, still... The kind of core part of our story really hasn't changed from that very first dinner on that very first deck, um, in Echo Park, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, back then, that it is about kind of the creation of intimate, warm feelings that, mm-hmm. um, spaces where it feels comfortable and safe to kind of expose the parts of ourselves that, um, you know, we generally keep under lock and key, um, and using that, um, as kind of a means of exploring both the kind of ugly truths and realities um, and parts of our stories that, you know, around which we feel shame or othered by, um, you know, or simply deeply uncomfortable and, um, you know, pained and saddened by, you know, to be able to name that um, and to feel comfortable in doing so and to feel heard, but then simultaneously, how do you create a space where people can also explore, um, you know, what this is teaching them about, you know, how they want to spend their time on Earth? Um,
0: yeah. I'm just curious you're saying that there's some shame around the lost and before that you also said that there's a certain taboo Around the loss and that's that's at least in my generation. There was not a taboo about talking about Death or, or about loss and I'm, I'm curious about that. What is what is the shame that that where does it come from? Why is it a taboo? for people in their 20s and 30s I understand why it's hard to deal with right so I um, Dr. Remen works with medical students who are in their early 20s, and these are physicians who are going out of the world at the age of 26, and death is part of their daily life. And that's, I mean, I could see the challenge of how do you deal with grief and how do you deal with loss, and I can see the, the storm of emotions that goes with it, but I'm curious about the shame and the taboo around it. Why is there a sense of, like, I've heard you before talking about there's almost a coming-out sense yeah. about loss. Where, where, where does that come from?
1: I think... Um... I mean I think the taboo is related to a number of um, different forces and um, you know most of particularly I mean, I can use my own story as an example, you know, like when I was um, 24 and met Carla for the first time and found that there was another person, quote unquote, like me, um, or who had been through um, a very different set of stories and experiences and obviously very different characters in the play. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for us, realizing that, you know, no two stories are ever the same, even within a family. Um, but that kind of recognition, um, was profound because I thought it was the first time that it was ever happening to me. Now, the reality was I had actually known other people who had lost parents young, um, who had been through similar kind of experiences, but because all of us were so, so good at not talking about it because we'd had that one experience where you do share and whether it's, you know, at a kind of casual cocktail party or, um, you know, just hanging out with friends it kills a conversa- conversation instantly. Um, you know, the person goes to the punch bowl or it's proverb- proverbial equivalent. Um, and you're like, okay, well I know not to do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think that, that it becomes kind of reinforcing for all of us. Um, and, and it's been a learning journey for us to realize that the other part of that taboo, the reason that um, people go through the act of, um, that we feel shut down mm-hmm. by the way in which that story is received, Um, is not because people are inherently deeply uncomfortable even talking about this it's that you don't know what to say it's that because nobody else is doing it we don't have vocabulary, we don't have ritual, we don't have other examples that we can draw upon Um, and so we don't know how to be helpful and so the responses Mm -hmm. go away and I think that every time that kind of message however subtly is kind of reinforced it does create a feeling of Mm -hmm. shame or simply otherness Um, and there is you know um, what we find is that uh, there are kind of two pathways to vastly oversimplify um, that a person, you know, particularly when young and going through this experience at a time in which it's not predicted, mm-hmm. um, and very few people within their peer groups are going through it as well, um, that you have that there are kind of two pathways that can happen Um, and one is the kind of victimizing narrative in which you know oh my life would have been all of these things but for the following happening Um, Mm -hmm. and then the other is that um, it kind of invites a window in which you can reflect about how you want to use your time on earth Um, and typically all of our language is geared towards the kind of first bucket Mm -hmm. of grief and I'm so sorry and like the pity face um, when the kind of rich territory to explore um, is about, you know, being comfortable Mm -hmm. with discomfort, but also making space to talk about the second kind of pathway and what are you learning out of that experience? So the
0: difference between the dinner party and the cocktail party is that the cocktail party, if you're coming out or you share about a loss, the the people around you don't know how to deal with it and that's where the otherness comes and that eventually gets translated into shame and into taboo so you don't bring it up because you don't want to separate yourself from the group. Right. But at the dinner party I know that something else happens and actually maybe we can start with reading the manifesto. Yeah. How absolutely. did that come to be?
1: Um, well so this was actually really interesting. Um, you know again once we kind of realized slowly as people were hearing about it um, through friends and friends of friends and oh I know this guy, um, you know, who might be interested in coming to a dinner one night and Mm -hmm. um, we're hosting, you know A table in a different city um, We began to kind of realize that this, um, you know, story that each of us had individually thought that we carried alone Mm -hmm. And then discovered was actually a shared story within a table of people was actually part of a much bigger shared story um, and so it was interesting um, for us, you know, after beginning to open the doors, um, you know, to this and to invite in those, um, you know, who were hungering for the same kind of community in the same space, um, you know, to air that experience, um, we, after a period of time, actually began to realize that the kind of tribe of people, um, you know, for whom... This experience was relevant, um, you know, and something that, you know, was of value wasn't just everybody who had experienced a loss. Mm -hmm. It was people who were seeking a particular kind of community, a particular kind of, um, you know, forward movement and direction Mm -hmm. and and that ability, um, you know, uh, to absolutely 100 um, percent, you know, stay away from any form of advice giving. They weren't looking to be fixed. Right. They weren't looking to be healed. And so we needed a means through which we could kind of put out the call to find other people who could raise our hand, you know, to that set of sentiments. Um, so that gave birth to our manifesto.
0: I, I can't help, when, when you're talking, I just reflect on the Cancer help Program in Commonweal because so many of um, the, the way that you're talking about how you're building this place to have the conversation around the topic that you can't talk with people who are not experiencing it. Right. So a lot of this, how do you create this wholeness of the conversation? It's just always resonating. Absolutely. Um, but yes, let's, let me try and read this. So we are dinner partiers. We know what it is to lose a loved one, and we're not afraid to talk about it. We hold the following truths to be self-evident. Life after loss is forever different than life before. Grief isn't linear and moving forward is not the same as moving on. There is no roadmap, no game plan. You're, You're your own best expert. This journey is yours alone, but you are not alone in journeying. You've got this. And then, the commitments. The commitments we make to each other are simple. We will abstain from bullshit. And then the font is too small. (laughs) (laughs) No
1: no whitewashing loss, no standing on platitudes, no pitying. We will speak our own truth and listen deeply, openly, thoughtfully as others speak theirs. We believe in thriving, not just surviving. We will not avoid the pain, but we will also seek out the joy. We will see each other through our worst days and use them to create our best days. We'll take damn good care of ourselves and of each other. We will eat well, drink well, live well, love well. Look around the table and pull up a chair.
0: Amen. This could be a motto for many of us. That, that's wonderful. It feels like you, I mean you just created the space just by, by reading that. Yeah. So maybe let's dive in. So what happens if I was to show up at a dinner party? What would would I see? What would happen?
1: What would be my experience? Um, So we've, you know, the kind of process um, from that very first table through where we are today, um, where there are um, presently 31 tables in different parts of the country, um, has been a matter of figuring that out. And what are the kind of key principles that are shared across every table, recognizing that every dinner um, is going to look differently um, from every other one. Even if it's the same kind of group of people meeting all of our, you know, where we are in our respective journeys is different from Um, gathering to gathering, Um, but there are some consistencies, so when you walk in um, the way in which it works um, everything is a potluck dinner party, Um, and part of the reason for that um, is that it's cheap (laughs) 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 Um, but more importantly it gives people a real sense of ownership um, in the early days we would you know like slave away in a kitchen trying to like make everything and being really really frantic um, you know and of course we're constantly running behind um, and then realized that actually people were really hungry to be able to contribute something um, so that was kind of number one um, and actually that kind of gave um, birth to our second big insight that when you first come in um, things are the kind of design is such that um, it, you can be very cognizant suddenly of the amount of kind of care that has gone into creating this experience right. um, and that there's something there that um, is ready to take your breath away um, but also simultaneously um, that things are a little bit left undone um, because you know it helps I think in easing into a conversation um, there's a guy n- named Parker Palmer the founder of um, the Center for Courage and Renewal who has been a huge um, source of inspiration and, and a guide in a lot of this um, has kind of a saying about um, approaching this from the slant, Mm. that if you, like, demand the soul soul show up, um, it's going to do everything but, you know? Um, So how do you kind of create, within those first few minutes, a real feeling of intimacy that, you know, after that, like, moment when your stomach clenches and you knock on the door and, oh, God, am I ready for this kind of experience? Like, we'll pour you a glass of wine, you know, there's appetizers, there's food, and there's a few things um, that everybody can do and, again, kind of occupy their hands with. Um, and then, once the table is set, um, you know, and candles are lit. Um, we invite um, our host. Um, so for every dinner party, um, there is a host. Um, so they're trained is,
0: facilitators.
1: Yeah. So um, there, we do. So we um, just began our first trainings, and um, you know, share with each host kind of a set of principles and practices that we found helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in going through this process, and it was a surprising learning for us that um, simply bringing everybody together with a, you know shared expectation, they were all there for the same reasons. Even so, the taboos that we have against talking about this are so strong that unless somebody starts, um, we will continue to talk about the weather in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, finding people who are really um, gifted—you know—that kind of natural art of modern hosting um, at both. Um, opening up with their own truth and their own story, and that's you know our first mm-hmm. ask of every host is that you have to really want to be a part of this community. Right. That it's not showing up because you want to be helpful to other people, you know, who are in a state that you were in, you know, years ago. But where are you on this path, and are you, um, you know, comfortable of naming that um, and expressing your own real vulnerability? And then the second piece to that is, are you able to be a container, um, mm-hmm. you know, and a space holder for other people right. as they share their truths? Um, So the host, um, you know, go through a process of, you know, raising glasses, um, you know, to those who brought us together around a table um, and to everybody who, you know, um, had the courage to show up that night um and then if it's the first dinner um you know we introduce kind of a set of principles um and very very simple guidelines um you know to keep in mind um in having that conversation but otherwise it's unstructured and no agenda
0: so the Um, dinner just flows
1: the dinner flows i think the invitation and question um that you know we start with um and and informally is you know where are you right now Mm -hmm. um and that was actually an interesting thing that we began to see after those first couple of dinners um was that our conversations began to switch from past tense to present. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we had been, you know, coming in the beginning, sharing the kind of context that brought us all together, you know, and the moment of diagnosis if, you know, it was, um, you know, or that, you know, for uh, losses that were um, surprise and, um, you know, the the product of accidents, whatever it happened to be, sharing that kind of context, where you were, how old you were, but really the story that you'd repeated probably a thousand times and kind of hit the top line bullet points. And then we began to see that there was this really, that the interesting conversations were actually what happened afterwards as people began um, to open up about, you know, where they were in their um, jobs or in Mm -hmm. relationships and what was the moment to bring it up. Um, you know, uh, the daddy issues that you were having with your boss, um, you know, the struggle um, that would certainly arise around the holidays um, Mm -hmm. if there was no home and family to go back to um, or if that home and family were a very, very different, um, you know, took a very different form from the one that you knew. Um, And so, and we found that when you, um, you know, open that kind of question, um, people actually do have a lot to say and to share.
0: So you're Um, building, it's not a therapy, it's not a... uh, Support group, it's a community of support. Exactly. In sense. It's the same group of people get together over time, and it's happening in 40 cities. Um, I want to open it up to everybody so we can all ask questions, but I'd like to ask one more question, which is um, concerning there's a lot of other people of your generation that you know that have not experienced loss, at least not that they can remember, or at least not out of sequence in the sense of a partner or, um, or a parent. What did they have to learn from the work that you've been doing?
1: I think um, one of the interesting things that we found through all of this, and, and we're just beginning to see this now, um, we released a toolkit a few months ago, um, You know, because we realized pretty quickly that we couldn't control this, that we could share kind of principles for what worked, but we would never physically be in the room, um, you know, with, we couldn't be in five rooms at once within one city, let alone, um, you know, in Indianapolis or McAllen, Texas. Um, So sharing tools to make it easier for people, um, you know, to sit down with others with a shared experience and have a conversation um, and build community out of that. Um, and realized that kind of our end goal was you know, not that um, every person in America who's experienced loss before they should um, is sitting down for a dinner party, um, capital letters, but that actually we feel normed and comfortable talking openly about these experiences with others who have shared that. Um, and what's been really interesting um, to realize is that um, we've begun to kind of see people applying those principles applying those tools to subjects that actually aren't related to death loss itself and um, whether that's to Divorce and um, we have our first table and um, emerging around um, miscarriage um, but we've also seen um, you know conversations emerge around questions of gender identity and sexuality um, you know among Parents and their children, um, any right. kind of topic that we, um, you know, by definition, feel shamed and other ba- othered by, and don't have kind of spaces to comfortably talk about it, um, that this can be a means through which we actually, you know, um, start that conversation. Right. And so I think, you know, that my invitation um, and pa- the the powerful thing that we've seen out of all of this is that and again, to go back to kind of where we were in the, in the early days of feeling so incredibly alone and isolated by this experience, is to realize that everyone mm-hmm. on Earth, part of the human story, is that we have a story. Right. Um, and we have something that, um, whether it's you know, what we've lived through personally, um, you know, loss can take a lot of different forms beyond death loss, um, or something that you know, we've seen in a friend and wondered how to be um, you know, sources of support Um, To that person, wondered, "What do you say and do?" That that can actually be a really powerful entry point, and that if we choose to enter that door, really extraordinary relationships can emerge, and really extraordinary conversations that are the kinds of conversations that all of us crave—you know—that go beyond the banal, go beyond the kind of forgettable, um, you know, like Mm -hmm. small talk. That that can emerge if we give ourselves that permission.
0: You're taking—it's—it's—it's beautiful. Taking some very old rituals like storytelling and developing a sense of belonging and the family dinner table right. and weaving them together and something that is not new, no, something that has been happening for as long as death has been Thanks. around um, and weaving that to create the kind of support that we need. I'd like to invite anybody. We're here at the New School Talk with Lennon Flowers at the On the Commons in Fort Mason in San Francisco. Um, and I'd like to open it up to anybody who has questions for Lennon.
1: Um,
2: You talk about millennials and 20 to 30-year-olds being sort of the target group. And uh, social media has given us a very different, changing, amorphous view of disclosure and privacy. It's a very changing landscape. How could you speak about that in relationship
0: to the no bullshit maxim?
1: and what goes on in the dinner party. Absolutely. Um, so there's, there's a lot to kind of unpack there. And I should say, um, I actually struggle a lot with the word millennial. Um, I use it kind of as shorthand because it's one that we can all recognize. But millennial, the reason I struggle with it is because it's a term with a lot of baggage and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, And part of that is, you know, like the perpetuators and I love a good cat video um, of the banal, you know. Um, And... um, So that, you know, this is, it has been kind of described as the selfie generation, you know, um, and a population of people that like actually very rarely talk openly about real matters of privacy and yet struggle with um, the way in which, you know, privacy is daily violated um, by kind of tools and technology and information spread. So there's that side of it um, that is perfectly true. Um, and then there's a side of millennials, um, and through those very same tools, where I think we've actually seen um, it makes it easier sometimes to have that conversation, and that people who are uncomfortable, um, you know, in physical company with somebody at a party would never necessarily raise that part of their story, on a Facebook wall, um, or you know, in within their own kind of feed right. and profile, can say this is what's happening for me today. You know, um, whether that's you know in the immediate aftermath of losing someone that they love um, or on an anniversary or on Mother's Day or Father's Day. And so two things are really interesting within that that it gives people um, both permission to express their own stories and then for every person who loves that person um, and I recognize that you know the friends that we maintain on our um, you know Facebook pages aren't necessarily um, the friends with whom we would choose to sit down over a dinner um, table but people are um, able to show up more easily and it can be as simple as kind of the liking of a status and like recognizing um, you know and naming but I hear you in this moment and I think the problem is if that becomes the end of the con- Conversation. If, like, we you know take um, our ability to comment um, on a status update um, as you know we've kind of done our job for showing up, um, but instead I think as often you see that being the start of a conversation, and then I think that a deeper kind of question is that there's only so much that can be shared on a Facebook status, you know, um, and kind of real questions of privacy and what do you feel comfortable kind of airing to the public. So to me, I think um, we don't need to vilify social media, um, you know, A, because it's here and that's the way in which we operate and tell stories, so we might as well use it well, Um, but there will always be um, real real value and necessity for conversations that are, that happen in physical community um, and that are kind of confidential to a space. Do you think
0: there's room for a virtual dinner party?
1: Um, That's a great question, actually. Um, I think, you know, I I think to a degree we're kind of seeing that happen, um, that people who haven't ever actually physically met through this community, now are members of a tribe and can um, communicate. Whether it's you know through Twitter or our Facebook page or um, you know the uh, uh, you know like various kind of post forums and these sorts of things, um, that there are ways to open up about that story without ever having physically been in a room with somebody. Right. Um, And so I think that there would be potential, um, you know, in certainly using this as a source of connection Mm -hmm. between people um, that aren't in the same place. Um, But again, I think that the value um, is inherent in what happens when you can actually see someone across the table. Um, So I think both are important. um, But certainly virtual can't exist um, without the in-person. The
0: virtual food would
1: not be that. Right, you know, (laughs) good luck getting drunk off of that. Julia. Um, Yeah,
2: um, I'm curious about in the
1: places where the dinner party was first established, are you seeing the same hosts showing up to host and is there continuity? Is it, in other words, becoming you know, a monthly thing, um, an irregular thing. Are people wanting? You know, is there? More, is, are they getting bigger? What do you? What are you just seeing? What's the organic process? I guess would my question about when it takes. Yeah. Um, well, it's so it's interesting um, because. Part of the reason that we even began, um, you know, focusing on building up a host community and tables that were generally closed, you know, to eight to um, 12 people. And, you know, we found that um, the ideal numbers for actually sitting down around a table and having a conversation like that, you know, were six to eight. Um, and you can have a really powerful dinner party with four people. But the power, um, real power happens when people, again, are building relationships over time um, and so that it's not just kind of a one-time experience with a group of strangers. There's power in that. There's power in coming together, recognizing that you're not alone, Um, you know, the way in which we kind of air and own our stories in a one-time experience if you've never done that before. Um, And we want to create spaces where, like, the barrier is low enough that people can, without committing to am I going to show up on a monthly basis to this group for the next year, that they'll, you know, feel safe enough coming into that kind of community environment. So we're using that as a stepping stone. Um, but more, more commonly, um, we are building closed tables. Um, and so with a host and the same kind of consistent group of people. And we're just now um, beginning and I, to see, you know, we're kind of at a point in our existence and have been doing this long enough um, that we can begin to kind of understand also the evolution of a table. Um, and that I think is, and, and part of it we don't know entirely because um, it's new. So but we are the table tell you what the natural, um, I don't know, the, um, how often a party would occur. Absolutely, Yeah. Yeah, so I think that 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 has been, like, one um, big learning, and particularly since this became kind of an an organization, um, something with a URL, um, was that, you know, our immediate instincts and, um, you know, I have certain control freak tendencies. um, So this has been a really important thing for me um, to overcome, um, that the organic factor is so essential um, because, A, people, um, you know, people are looking for different things in different communities. And that moment that you feel like you're being kind of forced into or manipulated by or here's this structure that I have to conform to is the moment that you choose not to show up, right, that this becomes kind of too much of a barrier. And so we have tables um, that meet, you know, uh, every. Um, six to eight weeks Um, we have some that meet more quarterly and have chosen to do that you know to say like you know this is really really valuable but it also um, this is heavy and significant territory um, you know and and I don't need to do it um, all the time you know but I would love to have it as an ongoing experience and so that is the kind of promise um, when we build a table um, is that this won't this isn't a one-time thing um but you know whether somebody chooses to do it you know um to a more kind of consistent schedule um with like a greater degree of frequency than the other guys that's not the point the point is that there's a real relationship there and that it is your choice um
0: are you part of a table
1: I am, and um, so interestingly that very same um, table from the early days um, is still a group of very dear friends of mine. Um, One of the original members um, is one of my roommates, um, and we're all going out to Santa Barbara in a couple of weeks. Um, But I will say, and this is the other um, point to Julie's question, um, that we're, beginning to kind of realize that for a lot of the people around kind of those original tables, um, you know that first started, um, three years ago, the evolution isn't that you need to come together over a formal dinner party and talk about loss each and every time, um, but that you can have a community of friends that you get together with, you know, and go on hikes with and, um, you know, go out to eat, that they show up at the bigger, more fun parties. Um, (laughs) and we're really big believers that, you know, every dinner should have an element of fun as well. Um, but that, you know, Over time, um, our interest is in growing um, modern family, you know, and so that you don't have to kind of meet in a structured sense. um, And that's a really good thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Lennon, I'm interested in your focus on on your generation and whether you've thought perhaps of expanding it beyond that, the dinner party. Or are you, you? Condemning
1: the rest of us to figure it out for <laughs> Yes, and... Um, Find your own table. <laughs> and, um, so, and I think the answer is yes to both. Um, that um, in some ways, so it was surprising for us, um, and we assumed um, that, you know, the reason that um, this was so valuable for us was because we didn't because it, we're really hard to find sometimes. You know, um, you know that kind of significant loss isn't the isn't the norm. Um, you know, when we were among the first in our peer communities to go through this, so we needed to branch beyond our peer communities to find each other. So we figured for people, um, you know, in their 50s and 60s who were going through loss as part of the shared human experience, losing their parents, um, you know, that they knew other people that. We always assumed that they were talking about it, and I think the reality is that our taboos around death and dying And the scar tissue that is left by the fact that we die badly in this country um, Isn't something that anybody talks about now the kind of number one um, One of the kind of key principles for what we're doing is that notion that no one is an expert and everyone is is an expert And you're only an expert of your own story So we wouldn't have any place convening a table um, you know, for a group outside of our generation because that's not our landscape and our world. But we created a toolkit through which people, um, you know, and we're seeing this happen, that there are tables of um, 50-somethings, starting dinners with other 50-somethings. And, you know, that is the kind of invitation, um, is how do we create shared tools and principles that each of us can apply, um, you know, really um, truthfully back to our own community.
0: About building that crucible, to borrow a word from a good friend of mine from Commonweal. Um, But how do you create that container to deal with those hard questions, regardless of how old you are? Right. Rachel? I'm Rachel. I just wanted to
2: ask you some questions about your generation and death. You know, we're crazy here. What was it? Woody you said? In? in America, Death is seen as option. And I have an odd experience uh, for the last 25 years. I've taught a course called The Healer's Art. And it's now in 90 medical schools in seven foreign countries. And it's a 15-hour elective discovery model, pure process course. And the people in it are the people you're talking about there. 23 to 32, so in their school. And in this course you and and people are put into groups of six with a facilitator who's a doctor who participates as a member of the group. So you're just there basically to be sure everyone keeps listening generously to one another. And something like 2,000 students take this course. And the pattern is the same all the way across the country. And my curiosity is, these are medical students. Is this a medical student thing? Or is this a young person thing? And I don't know. So here's the pattern. For five hours of the 15 hours, these circles which stay the same, little groups stay the same for the whole 15 hours. For five hours, they talk about death and loss. And they tell each other their stories. And the first hour is always the same. I'm too young to have lost anything. I I can't think of anything I have lost. And they're very sincere. I mean, no one's one's looking for a place to talk about death and loss at all. And then the second session, we ask people to bring an object that might be related to any loss or any disappointment. And I'll give you a classic example. The last circle that I led in, in this school, it was a young man who said, well, my mother died when I was two, but I was too young to know her, so I haven't lost anything. That, that's the kind of remark, and that's a pattern. And so I asked the group, and all the others were doing very similar things, not quite as dramatic as that. They asked the group to bring an object with them that related to whatever it was they were talking about for about three seconds I mean, each okay. to the next session. So he brings a photograph of a beautiful young woman. And he puts it down in the middle of the circle. We're sitting in the Puts it down in the middle of the circle. And there's silence. And the group begins to cry. The group begins to cry. And he is sitting there, and then he begins to cry. And we cried for 45 minutes. And I said to myself, you know, no one is looking, this particular group, nobody is looking for a place to talk about the demons. They're not. I don't understand that. And I don't think it's because there's a doctor there sitting with these men, because the doctor's going to tell incredible stories, painful stories of death and in his own life, a horrible life. And a lot of these young people
1: with death and dying, with death, with mortality, with the fact that we don't have forever on Earth, I think is Absolutely, something that is not generationally specific or limited, and that you know our generation, because and particularly if you haven't had that experience um, of having uh, directly lost someone significant to you, if that story is not kind of um, at top of mind, you don't feel safe talking about it because you don't feel like you belong in that conversation. Um, but you know, there are questions that kind of all of us wrestle with, you know, and particularly in an age in which um, you know, permanent, uh, what is permanence? Um, and you know, I think. One of the kind of defining features of this generation um, is um, that we are, you know, choosing um, in a very big way as a trend um, to, you know, seek out purpose and meaning um, in our lives, in work, um, and in the kinds of communities that we form. Um, And I think a lot of that, you know, ties back to kind of questions of um, what do you do with your time here? Um, So I think that the, the hunger to talk about death and dying. Um, despite the fact that there are very significant kind of taboos around that, that people are more interested in it than we know, um, that to, than we would expect. But I also think um, the kind of question around um, loss, uh, Um, as a source of this kind of common currency, but not one that we know that we even like possess those stories to begin with, that you have to kind of create the containers in which we can begin to explore that, in which you can begin to see your own story differently, is a really powerful kind of notion. Um, I'll point to an example. Um, A dear friend of mine um, runs an organization in Baltimore um, in uh, working in education. Um, And this actually began out of um, the Johns Hopkins Medical School, Um, and even down to undergraduates who, you know, had that kind of life pathway planned for them um, or that they had planned from the age of 18. Um, And they're working um, with kids in the Baltimore um, County school system who are, um, you know, in the bottom 5% of their class, um, you know, very much on track to be um, dead or in jail by the time they're 18. Um, and the their kind of model and um, intent is how do we build modern community um, and modern family around these individual kids who are um, deeply lost in the world and that the world has given up on. How do we create a circle of 8 to 10 students, undergraduate volunteer students um, whose sole job and responsibility is to not go away. And so when the door slammed in their faces, they come back the next morning at 7 a.m. and make sure that they're driven um, you know, to class Um, and they'll keep going and keep at it and because there are many of them um, there's kind of enough of a community that will power them through um, what is a really really hard undertaking the reason that it works and their success um, is powerful they um, never lost a kid and um, they have 100% high school graduation um, and close to 100% um, they call it 100% college entrance rate um, and close to 100% college graduation rate for kids that absolutely had no chance, were, were told that they had no chance from birth, essentially. The reason that it works um, is because they begin with a process of inviting those kids um, and the um, college volunteers, and I say kids, these are high school students, so there's not a huge age differential. But they are definitely people who have, um, you know, as they walk down a street, see each other as other. They begin with a conversation about loss. They begin with a conversation about what are the stories that we carry and the projections and images. Um, of difference and realizing that it may be that somebody um, you know who you'd never kind of expect on the surface um, has lost someone um, significant to them through death loss um, it may be that um, they've lost some uh, loved one to mental illness um, or to um, alcoholism or struggled per- personally um, with their own kind of questions of um, depression um, you know and what is my value here on earth um, and that, that is the kind of shared common currency. And out of that conversation, um, really powerful relationships can be born among people that have walked seemingly very, very different lives. Um, so I think that pattern that you're seeing is not by accident. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Lennon. we're almost at the end of our hour. Um, what's next for the organization, for the dinner party?
1: Um, so we are working toward the day um, in which there are 5,000 tables. Um, so we're currently at, 40, at 31. Um, we've got a few to go, um, but we're. Um, so we've released um, a toolkit and are inviting in now um, partners. Um, and organizations who have member communities and constituencies um, where people are similarly looking to build community. Um, So we're at kind of a point where we can um, supply the tools um, and uh, the invitation for anybody who is kind of hungry to start a table or to join a table. Um, that they can very easily do that Um, and I think for us the kind of broader question and I think we've touched on this a lot in this conversation is that it can't just end with dinners um, because that, you know, simply closing the door with people that have lived through this doesn't actually help to do anything about the deer in headlights reaction um, that they've gotten that has you know, kind of led them to closet that experience to begin with. So how do we culturally invite a conversation um, in which we talk about Loss, um, and so we're now um, exploring. Really excited about um, projects around, um, you know, the kind of vagina monologues for loss. How do we give voice and space, um, you know, to people across generations, where we can name the stories that we don't know that we share, um, and use that and really explore. Um, this is in common currency, um, and ultimately create a day in which, um, you know. Vulner- sharing openly mm-hmm. situations and experiences about which you feel vulnerable with other people who've lived it is a norm.
0: Yes, How live by, may it be so. Okay. Lennon Flowers, thank you. You joined us for the New School Talk at the Commons in San Francisco. And if people want to find out about you, they'd go to your website.
1: And www.thedinnerparty.org. Um, I should also mention we are launching our, our second Indiegogo campaign on December 2nd.
0: Thank you, Mayor, very much for joining us at the New School. Good night.